The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today it is a delight and honor to bring our listeners Dr. Marion Nessel. She is a Pollock Goddard professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health and professor of sociology at New York University. I want to say she probably needs really no introduction. She is certainly a nationally known and highly respected nutritionist and the author of several books, most recently the co-author of Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Welcome, Dr. Nessel. Glad to be here. Well, I love to look at dedication pages in books, and I notice that this one is dedicated to the memory of Wilbur Atwater. Who is he? Well, really, who was he? Who was he? That's right. That's right. Uh, Right. He was a scientist in the late 1890s, 1880s, 90s, and I think he died in 1907. And he was the first researcher who really examined everything about calories. He measured the calories in food. He measured the calories in people. He measured calories in every conceivable way. And the work that he did has held up over the century since, and even though lots and lots of people have tried to refine it, the piece of his work, Atwater Values, that we know best, that is four calories uh, per gram for protein and carbohydrate and nine for fat, still hold up. They're still on food labels. Mm -hmm. Why are we so fascinated by calories with all of the books you have in your arsenal Why, at this time, write about calories? Well, the book came about because I was invited to do a book on calories by my editor at University of California Press. And the minute he suggested it, I knew it was just a terrific idea. For one thing, there's enormous public confusion about calories. You can't see them, taste them, smell them, or feel them. And the only way you know whether you're getting too many is because you're gaining weight. And the other is that calories are associated with the two most important public health nutrition problems that exist in the world today, and that includes both undernutrition. There are about a billion people in the world who don't have enough calories from the food they eat on a daily basis to maintain their weight and health. And then on the other hand, there are another billion people who are eating so many calories that they're gaining weight and developing risk factors for chronic disease. So it seems to me that they were at the center of public health nutrition at this particular moment in time. And fortunately, my partner, Mal Nesheim, is an expert on calories and animal nutrition. And I thought, oh, this will be a great partnership. Uh, And so we did the book together. Well, you know, it's funny. So I've been a dietitian for 30 years, and I remember writing my thesis on the development of childhood obesity. And I think back, and I think, wow, we haven't been very successful as a profession in 
reducing obesity. In fact, we've done everything wrong, it seems. And I remember evaluating diets as a young dietitian. You know, what matters most? Is it better to have more carbohydrate and less fat? What about these high-protein diets? And 30 years later, we are still having these same discussions. So what is the ideal diet? Yeah, well, there we are having that discussion. And it's a matter of trying to figure it out. I mean, the business about calories and what's in the calories or where the calories come from is a really important one. And it's important to understand that from a strictly a weight standpoint, it's calories that count. If you care about health, it's where the calories come from. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you mentioned the study done in Kansas, the Twinkie diet, where the individual ate nothing but junk food and was able to either lose or maintain weight. So yeah, there's, they didn't eat very much. Yeah, and probably wouldn't feel very good at the end of the day. Well, it wasn't a particularly helpful diet, and if he kept on it for a long time, he probably wouldn't be very healthy. But for a, few, you know, for a week or two, it's not going to make any difference to anybody. Right. You can eat anything uh, or not eat anything and lose weight on any diet. One of the interesting things about the research during the book was that in looking at the different kinds of diets that people go on for weight loss, and there have been many, many studies of comparative diets by now, a couple of conclusions can be drawn. One is that people can lose weight on any diet. The, what any combination of protein, fat, or carbohydrate. Some people find low-carbohydrate diets easier to follow at least for a while, but after about six months, people on average start gaining weight back, and the longer the study goes on, the less difference it shows between one kind of diet and another. And in the one study that was done that we were able to find where the calories were actually measured, not estimated and done in people who were essentially incarcerated. They were in a hospital, and so everything they ate and drank could be measured. There it made no difference whatsoever how much protein, carbohydrate, uh, or fat they were eating. As long as the calories were below expenditure, they lost weight at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So we live in an environment, however, that makes controlling that total calorie intake very difficult. I don't know if you've ever passed through a particular section near Amarillo, Texas, but there is a restaurant there called the Big Texan. And if you can eat a 72-ounce steak in one hour with all the trimmings, you get it for free. I want to know how food can be so cheap. How can we offer so much food, so many calories, so cheaply? Well, that has to do with our agricultural policy. Starting way back at the beginning, the purpose of the Department of Agriculture in the United States was to make sure that everybody had enough food. That's a pretty good purpose. Mm-hmm. But over the years, the policies changed and began to support certain kinds of foods rather than others. And the kinds of foods that get agricultural supports are commodity crops like corn and soybeans and Those are mainly used for feed for animals, so that makes meat somewhat cheaper. The reason that you can give somebody a 72-ounce steak, really the mind boggles, (laughs) is because at some price that that reasonable people can afford is because the feed up for those animals is artificially cheap because of price supports. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we're not supporting is fruits and vegetables, 
And there's a big push to try to do that now, that we're so worried about obesity. We need to do something to make healthier foods cheaper and more available. Do you think we're going to see those changes? I think we'll see some incrementally. Mm-hmm. We tend to do things incrementally in this country. Yes. You know, one of the issues related to this commodity crop idea is this rapid increase or rapid change in fructose consumption, specifically from high fructose corn syrup. And if we look at, you know, remember when I was a kid, there was like a six and a half ounce bottle of Coke and it wasn't going to hurt anybody. But now we've got 20 ounce bottles of Coke and Pepsi and all kinds of sweetened beverages. How well, actually, the amount of fructose that we're eating hasn't changed. It's just that source has changed. I see. There's just as much fructose in table sugar as there is in high fructose corn syrup. It's just that high fructose corn syrup has replaced a lot of the sugar we were eating. In liquid form, is that correct? Well, it's not necessarily in liquid form. It's also in solid foods. It depends on what they put it in. But the uh, certainly soft drinking consumption has increased over time, and overall sugar consumption has increased over time. But I don't think you can blame it on the high fructose corn syrup alone. It's only one part of the fact that everybody is eating more of everything. Mm-hmm. Do we metabolize the high fructose corn syrup differently than we do table sugar? No. Okay. Because it has the same amount of uh, fructose... And glucose. I mean, they're, they're from a biochemical standpoint, they're the same. And high fructose is, uh, is a misnomer. It's not any higher in fructose than sucrose is. Sucrose is table sugar. Um, so they're essentially the same. It's fructose that you want to worry about because that's the one that seems to be metabolized in ways that are more difficult for the body to handle. But sugars are sugars, and everybody's eating too much of them. Everybody would be healthier if we could cut back on sugars. Well, in the work that you did with one of your students at the time, Lisa Young, you investigated this rapid increase in portion size. So all of a sudden, we're having larger portions of soda and pizza, etc. What happened to shift our portion sizes upward? Well, I think several things happened. For one thing, agricultural supports, the farm policy changed a little bit, so it encouraged, it went from paying farmers not to grow food to paying farmers to grow as much food as they possibly could, and they did. So there was more food in the food supply, and that made the food industry more competitive. They had to look for ways to sell their food. And then on top of that, the way Wall Street evaluates corporations changed at about the same time, and we're talking about the late 70s, early 1980s, and Wall Street stopped valuing corporations on the basis of long, slow returns on investment, blue-chip stocks, and switched to a situation in which they demanded of corporations that they not only make a profit, but that they increase their profit, grow their profit every 90 days and report quarterly growth to Wall Street. So what that did was, I mean, that was terrible for corporations in general, but for food corporations it was especially difficult because there was already twice as much food available in the food supply as the country needed. And now food corporations had to not only sell that food, but they had to increase sales every quarter. And as a result of that, they looked for new ways to sell food, 
one of them was larger portions. One of them was putting food absolutely everywhere. I love to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? <laughs> right. Um, you know, you can get food everywhere now. And the research shows that the more food that's available, the more people eat. If food's there, you're going to eat it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned unless you have some kind of character that's a lot different from mine. Well, I... and if food is there in larger portions, you're going to eat more. Again, unless you have a much stronger character than mine is. Well, sometimes I think it's interesting if you've ever stumbled upon a a sale, a yard sale, where they're they've got dishes from the back in the 1950s, and they almost look like dollhouse sized plates and well, they're salad dishes. plates. Yeah, exactly. Look like salad plates. Right. Yeah, the size of dishes has increased. The size of muffin pans has increased. The size of everything has increased. And as a result, the size of people has increased. And the diet industry has taken advantage of that. Oh, absolutely. The diet industry, the drug industry, uh, the surgery industry. I mean, there are many, many industries that take advantage of it. I like to ask the question, what industry would benefit if people ate more healthfully? I'm hard-pressed to think of one. Yeah, that's a really good question to ask. David Kessler's book is mentioned in this book also, and David Kessler thinks that some foods are just almost addictive in nature. And I've often had this conversation with people, you know, is food addictive or not? What do you think about that? Well, we have to eat to live. If we don't eat, we starve to death. Is that addiction? I don't know. I I, I can't answer that question. A lot of people think that that the combination of sugar, fat, and salt in one form or another um, makes people like it so much and affects pleasure centers in such a important way that people just feel that they're addicted. Certainly, I know lots of people who think they're addicted to chocolate. Right. Although right. when the studies were done that you know, sort of took out the components of chocolate to see which one might be, none of them really worked out. As being addictive, people just really like it. Is liking the same as addiction? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know I, how to answer that question. I, I struggle with that one too, especially when we look at things like endorphins and all these pleasure centers in our brain. And but you don't go through the same kind of withdrawals when you don't have carbohydrates, say. You certainly go through withdrawal if you don't have something to eat. True. You get hungry. That's not a very pleasant sensation. Mm-hmm. especially if it's not something that you're doing voluntarily. Right. So, But it's very hard to know if it's the same kind of thing. I don't know whether it matters. We have to eat to live. Mm-hmm. And if we want to be healthy, we need to eat healthfully. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Marion Nessel. She is the co-author of a brand new book called Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. She is a Paulette Goddard professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health and professor of sociology at the New York University. Dr. Nessel, I have to ask you about the politics piece of this book, as well as the politics nature of your wonderful blog. Sometimes people tell me that they don't like to get political or they don't want to talk about certain topics because they're political. And yet you're encouraging us to eat less, eat better, move more, and get political. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the entire environment in which we make food choices is there because of political decisions. You know, if you 
just think about it, the food industry does not want the government to make any kind of rule or regulation that would impede its ability to sell more food, not less. Or to put it another way, it's really bad for business to eat less, but that's what you have to do if you're worried about obesity. Mm-hmm. So food companies have as their primary purpose to sell more food, not less. And they're very eager to have the government help them do that in every way possible and to prevent the government from doing anything that's going to discourage that. So anything having to do with food is going to be political. Anything having to do with food labels, the health claims that are on food labels, agricultural supports, the kind of food that's given to the poor, the kinds of things that people are allowed to buy with food assistance benefits all have political aspects to them. And calories are political, too. Just look at calorie labeling. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Health Care Act survives the attacks on it this year, it's got a codicil in it that will make calorie labeling go national next year. And we already see it in fast food restaurants in New York City and some other places but it's supposed to go national very soon. And I've seen some good reports saying that when we see the calories, sometimes we'll step back and say, wait, maybe I'll make a different choice, or especially the the report that I saw that showed how much you'd have to exercise to burn off something was extremely effective. Well, the New York City Health Department has been particularly active. New York City has one of the highest rates of heart disease And they're very eager to try to bring those rates down and bring diabetes rates down and bringing obesity rates down would help with both of those. And so they've embarked on a series of campaigns. The first was calorie labeling, and they have this terrific poster campaign where they illustrate uh, how far you would have to walk in New York City to burn up the calories in a 120-ounce soda, for example, or how many packets of sugar go into a 20-ounce soda. Mm-hmm. Let's stay on the political topics here for a moment, and let's talk about taxing soft drinks. Now, I recently had a discussion with Brian Wansink, who's done some very interesting research on the environment and how that determines what we eat and what we like. And I asked him about taxing soft drinks, and he said, no, it just drives up the sale of beer. And <laughs> that's an interesting response. But what, what are your thoughts on taxing soft drinks? Well, lots of people have thought of it as a way to try to reduce soft drinks. And soft drinks are a really easy target for doing something about obesity. They have sugars of one kind or another and no nutrients to speak of. There's some evidence that calories consumed in liquid form may not be computed by the body as food in the same way as calories consumed in food form. And sodas are ubiquitous, and some people consume very, very large amounts of them. I've heard pediatricians tell me that they have obese children in their practice who consume 1,000 calories, 1,500 calories, 2,000 calories a day from soft drinks alone. No wonder people are gaining weight. Mm -hmm. It's really understandable under that situation. So there's a big push now to try to get people to cut down on sugary drinks of all kinds. 
And that campaign has been quite effective in the United States. Sales of soft drinks are down, but on the other hand, sales of energy drinks and sport drinks are up, so maybe they balance out. And but it's a very good place to start I wonder, if you're trying to lose weight. Uh, oh, I agree. I think that at least from patients that have told me, just simply taking out the soft drinks have led to dramatic weight loss. Yeah, but, I've heard this from many, many people. But for taxing the soft drinks, I always have to ask myself, well, what might some of the unintended consequences be? And I would really hate to see this kind of thing drive up the sale of artificially sweetened soft drinks. And I wonder, what are your thoughts on artificial sweeteners? Well, they go under one of my rules for healthy eating or for dealing with packaged foods in the supermarket. My rules for dealing with packaged foods in the supermarket include uh, never eat anything artificial. So artificial sweeteners are off my radar. Mm. I don't like the way they taste. I don't know what they do in my body. The FDA says they're safe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to do that experiment. Yeah, they're I... not metabolized. I don't know what they do. and I, Mostly I don't like the way they taste, and I use that as an index of, uh-oh, there's something wrong here. Yes. So I'm not in favor of them. Also, because there's no evidence whatsoever that they help people maintain weight. Exactly. Uh, in fact, if you want to do, if you want to have fun with statistics, you can look at the rise in consumption of artificial sweeteners, and it exactly parallels the rise in obesity. <laughs> What's that about? <laughs> right, right. I, I well, wonder. Some the... people think that artificial sweeteners maintain the taste for sweet, and that people try to compensate by eating more. As yes. a result, I don't really know whether that's true or not. But I don't like the way they taste, and I don't recommend them. I agree with you totally. You know, I heard Paul Breslin speak from the Monell Chemical Sciences Center, and he was saying that. Artificial sweeteners actually drive up insulin release. So they. Yeah, I've heard that. I'd like to see those studies. Apparently, there's been some recent research that he's done that's been published, and I'm anxious to take a look at that as well. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's fascinating that there's a direct parallel between the artificial sweeteners. Sometimes I wonder, if we get a diet soft drink, do we think we can have twice the size of pie then to go with it? I don't we know probably how it works. do. Yeah, exactly. Well, let well and most people underestimate the number of calories that they're eating. That that was another big take home lesson from the book was that the difference between calories measured in food and in the body and estimated in food and the in the body is huge. People generally underestimate the number of calories they're eating by a very large percentage, thirty or forty percent. And they overestimate the number of calories that they're expending. Uh-huh. We also tell people that we're taller than we are. So oh, yeah. <laughs> there's suppose. that, too. And thinner. Right. Exactly. Well, that, that actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask you about. When you were writing this book, were there some products, or during the course of your, of your professional life, have there been some products on the market where you look at the calorie level and you just say, oh, my gosh, I never would have suspected well, actually, that was the effect that calorie labeling had on me in New York City. Uh, the first week that calorie labeling was instituted in New York City, I went into my neighborhood, which has a, I, I live near New York University, and there are a lot of fast food places around there. And I just went from one to the next to the next to the next. And 
it was really shocking. And I'll never forget, there was a blueberry pomegranate smoothie that was 1,200 calories. Oh, my. There was a pizza that was 2,200. There was a cookie that was 670 calories. Wow. And I thought, holy smoke, I'm not going to eat those. Yeah, who'd have sunk it? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had any idea. And then later, the calories on those things came down, and I didn't know whether it was because they had made a mistake on the calories, they had reformulated, they had cut the portion size. Mm-hmm. I don't know. One of the effects of calorie labeling is that the people who are selling the food try to keep the calories down. Mm-hmm. You've got a great comic in the book, too, that shows a gentleman dining, and he says, I'll pay double for half the portion. Right. I don't know how many people would do that, but I, I really love that cartoon because one of the things that I talk about when I go talk to people who are restaurant owners is, can't you give your customers a price break yeah. for a smaller portion? I'd be willing to pay you know, just give me a dollar or two off on the meal and give me a smaller portion because I know if I'm confronted with a large portion of food that I like, I'm going to eat as much of it as I possibly can. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just human nature. I have to ask you a question. We're we're getting short on time, but you've had a long career in nutrition, and I want to ask you if you had a magic wand and you could change anything in the food system what would it be? I would change portion size. I think it would make a huge difference, absolutely huge difference. You don't need to any more complicated explanation for obesity than large portions. If I had one thing to teach everybody, it would be that larger portions have more calories. I can't even say it with a straight face, but it's not intuitively obvious, as Brian Wensick has shown over and over again. Larger portions have more calories. More calories make you gain weight. (laughs) Those are conceptually difficult for people to get, and I don't think we should underestimate how difficult they are. So do we ask consumers to do that, or do we ask both components of our society to respond? Well, I think that obesity is both a matter of personal responsibility and of societal responsibility. As a society, we want to make things easier for people. We want to make healthy eating the default. Mm -hmm. We want to make it easier for people to make healthy choices. And in order to do that, we need government right in there the way the government already is involved in our food supply. But let's have government involved in a way that's healthier. And is there something that gives you hope? Absolutely. I've seen enormous changes in the food supply since I started working on these issues, and I've been at it for 30 or 35 years now. You know, supermarkets now have much, much better quality and a much greater variety of fruits and vegetables than they had 20 or 30 years ago. Farmers' markets are all over the place. Organic foods are all over the place. I mean, these are enormous changes. You go into schools and you can see schools all over the country that have improved school lunches for kids. I see this happening everywhere. It's part of an enormous food movement. And if you just look at it, it makes you thrilled and inspired and you just know it's going to get better. Absolutely. And one of the biggest take-home messages from your book that I received was the idea that we really do need to enjoy food, but enjoy 
healthful, wonderfully tasting, good food. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Marian Nessel, who is a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, and professor of sociology at New York University. We have been discussing her terrific new book, Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Dr. Nessel, I want to thank you for your work in this area. You've lifted the curtain on a lot of important issues with regard to food and politics, and I want to Remind our listeners that your blog is one of the best sources for sane nutrition information, foodpolitics.com. Thank you, Dr. Nessel. In closing, Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.